worship team, thanks for leading us this morning. Appreciate you guys and gals. Well, we are in a series now that leads us up to Easter, and this season is called Lent. And our theme that we are returning to, well, the theme we're using is to remember and return. And that's the call, that's the season here during Lent. Now, um, this, is, uh, this is my friend here, my mentor, Dave Johnson. And um, yeah, Dave. Yeah, come on, give it up. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So if you haven't been here, (laughs) wow, that was loud. This is going to be interesting. Uh, If you haven't been here, um, Dave and his wife Bonnie have come to help out at Hope for five weeks, and we're right in the middle of that. And uh, we're going to end the time with Dave speaking at our men's retreat. But Dave just finished up in November, 38 years at one church. 38 years to the day. To the day. It was very weird. Yeah. Yeah. And Noah, my son, wasn't impressed. He said, come on, dude, two more years, you'd hit 40 yeah. years. What's the deal, yeah. right? Nice round number. Twitter, yeah. Twitter, so, right, right. <laughs> but we're really honored uh, to have Dave uh, here with us this morning. And uh, we're going to try something interesting. We're going we're gonna to do a little tag team here. So this could be brutal or it could be brilliant, right? Um, you, you might have, uh, I mean, we might talk forever. So, do nah. we have lunch? No? Okay. Okay, that's I'll get good. Hungry. You'll get hungry? Yeah, you will. <laughs> we'll be done. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Uh, we're going to... Are you going to stand move? the whole time? No, I'm going to sit down. Okay, okay. Are you going to sit the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to stand. Are we going to bicker the whole time? I, we could. That's awesome. This could be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay. <laughs> really, somebody needs to pray again. You, why don't you do that? Okay, go. <laughs> Serious? Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> Lord, I pray is just settle uh, Doug down and... Uh, <laughs> Honestly, Lord, we, uh, we invite you into this uh, thing, and um, just know that you're in it, and uh, help us identify where we are in the story, and um, those places that we need to open wide our heart, and those places where our hearts have grown uh, cold, and, and we didn't even know it. Um, give us the nudges that we need today to remember and return uh, to you. Pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Dave, will you um, maybe give us a little snapshot of Lent, especially for some of us who didn't grow up in traditions where Lent was something that we uh, were a part of? Well, it's part of my story. I shared that with you last week, that I did not grow up in a liturgical um, tradition. In fact, we were quite suspicious of seasons like Lent and Advent, and those sound like foreign words uh, to me and to us. Um, And I guess the first thing to kind of lay out for someone who is, is maybe even hesitant to enter into this uh, is, is that all of this, this rhythm stuff, Lent and Advent and things like that, moves the whole thing beyond um, just a day, like Christmas Day or Easter Sunday, um, into a season. And so we are entering into a season, not just Easter Sunday that we're going to celebrate at the end of this season, but we're kind of on this journey together. And while we're, some of us, like myself, growing up in church that was non-liturgical, were unfamiliar with these liturgical seasons, um, we're all familiar with seasons. And this was kind of an entry point for me. I had a friend who was trying to help me understand this, and he just kind of helped me go, Dave, you understand seasons. They're all around us. We live through them. We're affected by them more than we know. There are seasons of life that, that change us and inform us. They, they teach us things. Um, they pro- provide for us rhythm in our life that sometimes helps us navigate our lives because as we go through these different seasons of life, we feel things. And um, um, I'm from Minnesota. And so one of the profound marking seasons of our life together as a Minnesotan is winter. 
and some of you experience winter very differently than we do because it's actually pleasant here. It isn't in Minnesota, and I know some of you have fled. You are exiles from Minnesota. I know you are. Um, but, but Minnesota marks you. I mean, I mean winter marks you. It, 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 it kind of feels claustrophobic. Everybody goes inside. Everything dies. It's a very positive spin on the whole thing. But let me tell you what we experience, and this is a seasonal thing as well. When that snow starts to melt and the sun begins to come, and you see that first flower, you start, you can identify with this, again, it's just weather, but there's this resurrection thing that comes. There's this holy moly, this thing that felt so desperately long and confining is now coming to life, and there's some interesting rhythms in that. If you're an accountant, there's tax season, and if you're an accountant and I say taxis and you start, you probably feel something in your body like, you're never going to be home for one thing. How about baseball season? When baseball season starts, or if you're a baseball fan, I am, um, you feel things. It, 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 it stirs things, unexpected things. Actually, when baseball season starts, if you've been a Cub fan like I have, now 2016, we did well, but basically, hallelujah, that was that? Okay. Yeah. It stirs hope. In Minnesota, for instance, being there all the time, um, one of the markers for me getting through the winter, you're not going to believe this, it's when pitchers and catchers report for spring training. Uh, and, and, and the way it, it's framed in my mind, you've got to see me sitting in my house, snow all around, 40 below zero on a good day. And, and, and I just know in a mythical land far, far away that we're not actually sure exists called Arizona, um, where the sun shines in February and children play outside. It's unbelievable. I'm not sure this place exists. So with all of that in mind, I'm sitting in Minnesota. When I read it in the paper, the pitchers and catchers reported today, it means it's all real. It, this whole thing is real. It means there's hope. It means it's coming. The great thaw is on the way, and it stirs up hope. And I'm going way overboard here on purpose because you told me to. Um, but there's something about that kind of rhythm that we all know about and feeling you don't pay attention to, but we're inviting you into that kind of thing when we talk about Advent, and because we're waiting for anticipating the birth of Christ in Advent at Christmas. Lent is a very similar thing, but we're kind of waiting for something that needs to die. That's depressing. Jesus on the cross in order for it to come to life, and so we're waiting for that, and we're in the story of that, but it's not just a season. Um, that we are inviting you into these liturgical things. It's, it is a story. And it's a really big story, much bigger than baseball. And it's a story that has been unfolding for a very long time, beginning before we were born. It will continue long after we die. As wide as the universe, as old as eternity, it's the story of God. And we are in that story. And like all great stories, this story of God touches all the great Themes, the universal themes of life and death, okay? You can identify that in the story. Even Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It's the stories of good and evil are in the story of God. Hope and despair. J.R. Tolkien's uh, classic uh, book, um, and turned into a movie, Lord of the Rings, uh, has all of these components in it. And I am interested in the parallels to Lord of the Rings, beginning with an impossible quest. Think about this. To destroy the magic ring, there was an, a cataclysmic war between good and evil, right and wrong, light and dark, encounters with elves and orcs and wizards, deeds of courage, acts of betrayal, the making of friends, the grieving of death, the shadow of despair, the power of hope, 
But among all of the most important dynamics in Tolkien's story was this very intentional way that Tolkien created this sense of ordinary people. This is very intentional, and it's kind of one of the places we can enter the story of Lord of the Rings. Unlikely heroes, um, like Frodo and his uncle Bilbo and Sam, unremarkable people um, from an out-of-the-way place uh, called the Shire. They were hobbits. 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 They had habits, though, somewhere. They were hobbits living in a shire, but then they get pulled up into this very large story. So as hobbits living in a shire, they're just kind of going through it, da, 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 da. But all of a sudden, they're pulled up into something much bigger than them, a little bit scary, but very exciting, a huge adventure, lots is at stake against all odds. But Tolkien's whole point, and he really was mirroring the story of God in this in many ways, um, his whole point under the surface was actually this, that we're all like these hobbits in some way, in our shower, in our shires, living in our shires, unremarkable people, living ordinary lives in ordinary places, but there's a much bigger story than our little story going on, so one of the questions as pastors we ask as we're trying to teach our people the story of God, this first question would be, do you know the story? So we tell you the story. And in my church, we told you at Christmas, it was Jesus in a manger and a way in a manger and all those details, and they're very good to know, but do you know that not only is there a story, but you have a place in that story, um, and that it matters. Your place in the story matters, and the story we've been invited into is bigger than us, and it's bigger than the quiet little shire that we live in, which is a weird way to think about it, but that's a metaphor, and think about it if you can. Eugene Peterson says it like this, that the story we read in scriptures is not inviting us, nor is it leading us, to try to see God in our story, though we do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we kind of pray that way sometimes. God, help me get that job. God, help change my circumstance. Lord, help me get my house in my little shire, so I'm asking God to be involved in my story. Nothing wrong with that, but uh, Eugene Peterson says the real action comes when you begin to see our, when we begin to see ourselves in his story, where instead of saying, God, come and be part of my little story and help me be really good at it, we kind of go, my little story is well, my little story, and it's either really big or really not, but that story fits into a much bigger story, and now I find some perspective and even some meaning, even in suffering, because if I'm suffering, I'm wondering, why isn't God helping my little story, but if I'm part of a bigger story, there can be some redemption in this whole thing. I could go on and on, and I probably will. No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> But this is our little shire, right? right here. This thing we do here, Lord, help us with this and help us with that. And he does. But, and I don't want to sound um, flippant, but seriously, who cares <laughs> about my little um, job and my little thing? Um, about our little, it's just too little. Um, so the invitation is to begin to see my little story in the context of a much bigger story. So if you're a teacher or a coach or a housewife or a parent or a business person building your own little shire, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, God help me be successful in my coaching or my teaching, whatever. Um, but what if your story is actually part of a bigger one when, because then even the small thing you're doing fits into something of significance. And so these seasons, like Advent and now Lent is what we're in, um, not only tell us the story, here we are listening to the story again, um, they invite us into it and sometimes help us navigate it.
by telling us where we are in the story. And so, Doug, why don't you kind of remind us of where we are in the story and kind of bring us up to speed relative to the journey of Lent. Yeah, I um, think it's, it's just amazing to think of this as a story. And we, and we do that here at Hope. We, we put this story that we're in back in the context of the larger story. But particularly when we look at the season of Lent, if we were to enter the story right there, it's kind of like we would be getting in on the third movie of a trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. You're starting with that third movie. So if it was Lord of the Rings, you've got what, the Fellowship of the Ring, and then what's the middle one? Two Towers, thank you. And then Return of the King is the third one. So be like, well, I'm just going to start with the third movie. In fact, I'm going to go forward in that movie about halfway, and I'm just going to start the story right there. So if we jump into the story at Lent, it's kind of like we're skipping past parts one and two in the beginning of three. And in the story that we live in here on earth, the story of God, um, part one, part two of the story have already happened. Right? Think back to the story. There's the rebellion of the enemy um, and the fall of the angels. Then there is the beauty of God's creation and the garden. Then there's the betrayal of God's heart, of his love. And then you go through the Old Testament. It's like a soap opera, this romance between a God and these people who he loves so wildly, but they vacillate between faithful love and adulterous betrayal. This is the story that we are in And by the time we get to the third movie of the the trilogy, now a hero has come. God has written himself into the story. He comes as the hero. He comes as Jesus in human flesh. And again, we celebrate that at Christmas. So again, we're still fast-forwarding to where we are in this Lenten story. Uh, Jesus is born. He grows up. And around three years into his earthly ministry, he is on this road to the cross. And that's where we find ourselves right now in this story of Lent where so much has already happened. And Lent, this this 40 days that precede Easter, it's an invitation to slow down, to remember, to return to the story, and to find where we are in this story. And part of why it's an important thing for me to do this every year is that I so easily forget, like I forget about this big story that we're in and, and, and I just think about where I am today. Like I lose track of that larger story and forget that my life is in context of that story. And one of the things I think that we so easily and I so easily forget about the story is that it is a love story. Right? Because we get so caught up in, in the battle of, of killing orcs and, and, and dwarves and wizards and all that stuff and fighting the bad guys. Or, or we get caught up in our everyday battles, just doing our jobs, juggling the kids' soccer schedule, paying bills, fighting to just survive for another day, heck, another hour. We get caught up in all of our smaller but important stories, but they're smaller stories, and it's so easy to forget that the story we live in is a love story. And last week when Dave was speaking, um, he read a scripture from Revelation chapter 2 that sparked that for me. And he, he, he talked about how the church in Ephesus, which is in Revelation chapter uh, 2 is where this letter is, but the church in Ephesus uh, had forgotten. They had forgotten why they were doing what they were doing. And as one of the seven letters written in the book of Revelation, uh, here is what Jesus had to say to this church. Revelation 2, verse 2, Jesus says to them, I know 
all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. And again, last week when Dave read this verse in the message, it really hit me. It really stuck with me. The, the Apostle John was writing these words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus, but I could hear them as the words of Jesus to us here at Hope and to this church right here. I could hear Jesus saying, Hope, I see you. <laughs> I see you. I see all you have done in my name. I see the people that you have loved, the people that you have served, the ways that you have worked hard and been faithful. And while some folks have, have bail out from churches, you have endured patiently, trusting me to come through for you, trusting that I am in this. He continues in the scripture, and Jesus says to them, I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but they're not. You've discovered they are liars. And, and there's elements of this that are in the mix for us as well. And, and, and maybe it's not so much about evil people, maybe just even some of the idea that there is evil that, that has tried to steal, kill, or destroy what God is doing here at Hope. And so that rang true for me. Next verse, verse 3 says, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now, how many of you that have been around Hope for the past few years need much of an explanation on this one, right? Hmm. I mean, what a wild ride. Again, we talked about it a little bit ago, but, but one year ago this week, our pastor, Paul Thompson, lost his battle with lung cancer. Um, our entire staff has turned over. There have been some folks that had been a part of Hope that, that in the transition time left, and I know that's hard for some of you who were really good friends with some of those folks that, that moved on, and so there's all of that change to deal with. But there's been some amazing good stuff as well. God has brought new people to hope, and, and I believe God's moving us now into what he has intended for us as the people of hope from the time that hope started. Um, when our kind of founding pastor, Dwayne Cross, was here just a few months ago, remember what he said to us. He reminded us hope. He said, your best days are ahead of you. He said, our best days are ahead of us. And I think... Dwayne was right on with that. Um, by the way, how many of you are new to Hope within the last year? Just put your hand up and raise it high for a minute. Leave your hands up. Awesome. Uh, how many of you are here uh, in the last two years and so newer than two years? So keep your hands up if you were there. Excellent. How many of you have come since Dwayne, Pastor Dwayne, three years ago left? Keep your hands up if you were a part of that. But if three years, okay. Now the rest of you, how many have been here more than three years? That'd be the rest of you, right? There we go. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really amazing. There's a there's a lot of new people. There's this solid core of those of you who have endured and been faithful, and God has brought this together. And hope we have so much to be grateful for. I believe Jesus is saying to us in this scripture that that many of us have not quit. Uh, some of you who have been here a long time have suffered patiently, and others of you have come and caught the vision and are a part of what God is doing, moving us forward. I think Jesus is saying to us, well done, well done. Hmm. But in the middle of all this good stuff that is so true, stuff that Jesus sees that he commends, there's a warning from this passage to the church in Ephesians that in spite of all the good, we can still, we can still forget like the church in Ephesus, we have to recognize that we can lose track of the storyline because it's not just a battle. It's not just an adventure. The story is a love story. 
And while the next verse we're going to look at here was a strong confrontation to the Ephesians, I think it serves as a reminder. It's a reminder to us that we can forget, just like they did, we can forget that this is a love story. He said to them, next verse, Ephesians, yet I hold this against you. You have lost your first love. So repent and do the deeds you did at first. See, they forgot the story and they had lost their first love. Dave, what do you got on that? Well, last week I likened that to a marriage and, and I did that because it was a, I think it was a great illustration, but also it helps you enter into that without being overwhelmed because to hear God say uh, through John, um, you've left your first love, it just sounds like, whoa, that sounds like a huge thing, but it's part of life. Um, there doesn't even need to be any sin involved in, at all in that because like in a marriage, uh, marriage, let's assume it began in love and you're all a Twitter about each other and it was a wonderful thing, but, but what happens after you fall in love and you get married is life just happens. It's not a bad thing at all. You got to get a job, you go to work, you have kids, you start building a home and in the process of all of that life, none of which is bad, you just get caught up in the everyday realities of life and that that blush, that first blush of love, we forget why we got married in the first place. All of a sudden you're sacrificing to build a home and raise kids, but you forget why we did this in the first place. And when Jesus, through John, is saying you've left your first love, that was a perfect example of the Ephesian church because they were doing all the deeds of perseverance and endurance and, and spreading the word of God in a variety of ways, but they lost the why. And it wasn't this horrible shaming thing, but it is a warning. And if you let that go too long, um, you're going to end up in some real serious atrophy, having forgotten that you've left your first love and that this is a love story. Um, so it's time to remember and return, was the word from the prophet Joel last week. That was the primary text. But the truth is this, about this love story thing. Let's kind of turn a corner here a little bit. Well, I think we would all agree that the love of God and our love for God is central to our relationship with God, his love for us, our love for him. There's something about this intimacy with God thing uh, that can make us uncomfortable, maybe more than we actually know, because it's really easy to sing songs about I love you, God, and I love hearing how he loves us. Um, but sometimes it's, it can get a little um, scary. Exodus 20, give you an example. Jesus is calling the people to himself. Actually, he's giving the Ten Commandments, and part of what he says is, you shall have no gods but me, uh, no idols will you form. I am declaring you shall have no other lovers than me. And then he says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Stop right there. A jealous God. Jealous is weird. Jealous is wrong, isn't it? If I were jealous... Um, that would be a bad thing. You should get away from me if I was jealous of you, because if I'm jealous of you, I might control you. I might want to hurt you. If someone were jealous toward me, I'd back away. <laughs> I'd go, okay, you want a little too much. I need a little bit of space, kind of possessive. Someone who's jealous, it doesn't feel like a healthy thing at all. So how is it that God can be a jealous God, and how am I supposed to warm up to that? Here's my question, though. What if he is, uh, in some sense, possessive of you, maybe like a lover, well, that's weird, uh, about to get married, maybe like a couple about to get married to enter into 
covenant, which was what the Ten Commandments were. They were entering into covenant. And fascinating thing to think about the Ten Commandments, not as commandments, but as wedding vows. All your old boyfriend's pictures? Off the wall. Out of your phone book. I have no gods but me. Just, just, it's just going to be me now, is what this is kind of saying, I think. And it's, it sounds kind of demanding. Um, you'll have no gods but me. That's demanding. But what if it is what I just said? What if it is more like a bride and a groom and the way they talk, making vows to have and to hold from this day forward, um, forsaking all others? As if to say to your bride or to your husband-to-be, um, I'm not going to share you with any other woman. I'm not going to share you with any other man. But that's kind of restrictive, don't you think? <laughs> no, not in that analogy. You're getting married. You're, you're making covenant, and now when I describe it like that, I think, I, I get it. Anyway, I get it now. I understand it now because it's not restrictive, but what if God's love is like that? Um, like a lover who doesn't want to share you with all the other loves you have. And gods you serve. Ooh, that's kind of, whoa, I have to rethink that. I love to think about, think about the love of God and blah, blah, blah. Now, um, Doug and I were talking about this, how to unpack this, because there's a, there are a multitude of metaphors all through the scriptures that are used to describe and help us get a handle on um, our relationship with God. And um, they all speak even of, of certain ways that we need to be relating to him, and I think we can all relate to every one of them. Um, and they, uh, but, but, but of all of them, um, none are more intimate or maybe even demanding than this metaphor of a bride and a groom. But to give some perspective on that, let's unpack a few of the other ones so yeah. we can kind of yeah. understand why this one of bride and, bride and groom really is a little more dicey than the other ones. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think uh, the way we want to start this off, too, is acknowledging that each one of these metaphors is true of our life and our walk with God and how we relate to him. Um, but there are some of these pictures of what our relationship with God looks like that go deeper. So we're going to start with something that's a little maybe more simple on this. And again, at every one of our walk with God, we find ourselves in these places um, frequently. And one of the facets in how we relate to God is a common one is this. He is the potter and I am the clay. One scripture around that is Isaiah 64 verse 8 says, Yet, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. So mold me, make me. Yeah, I didn't think we were going to sing no. those, but that was, that was something. Was scary. Oh. Run for the hills. Where's anyway, the picture? I wish there was the video. That would have been so good. <laughs> but the, that's a good old uh, worship tune from, what, the 70s that some of us would remember. Yeah, so he's the potter, I'm the clay. And, and this is such a great metaphor. I think we enter into this time and time again where we watch God shaping us. And in order for me to be the clay and allow him to be the potter, to say yes to him, I have to trust him. I'm going to have to submit to him. I trust God and I say, Father, mold me, make me what you want me to be. Do with me what you want. And I trust God to shape me. This is a great metaphor, important one again and again to enter into. 
and I think we come back to it too from time to time. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, when we were singing during worship, but I was thinking about that one, the, 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 the clay thing to me speaks to times that I need to be pliable, and I, I'll recognize somewhere along the line I've really gotten hard. I've really gotten stubborn, and I'm not listening and to just release all of that, you know, the no I have in me sometimes toward God. The second one, or the step up from that, if you will, would be uh, we're described as God is the, is the shepherd and we are the sheep. You're familiar with that one as well. John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and uh, you are the sheep. And what a shepherd does, the analogy is pretty uh, obvious. It protects the sheep. The, the, the shepherd feeds the sheep. It leads and guides the sheep. And I, and I get that. And I, I even, even understand where I am in that analogy and how part of my journey with, with God and so is yours is learning how to follow where the shepherd brings us. And so there's some submission things that it's tapping here that I sometimes resist and so do you. But here's the deal about the shepherd and the sheep um, analogy. It's not very flattering to be a sheep. I just, they're not very smart. They're not very... Um, um, Athletic, they're, they're just kind of dumb. They're, they're, you're a dumb sheep in this analogy, um, and pretty much all you do is follow. So it's kind of, again, not very flattering. And when I lose my way as a sheep, generally the reason I love I love this one too. A sheep does not usually wander from the shepherd because they're mad at the at the shepherd. They don't go, I hate that shepherd. Bah, I hate you. It's not like that. Usually a sheep is dumb, and this is how you wander, it's how I wander. I really re relate to this. I'm just, I really want to be by the shepherd. I love the shepherd. I know he feeds me and takes care of me, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I start smelling something. Well, that smells good. I wonder what that is. And you just follow the smell. You know how this goes. And all of a sudden, you follow the smell, and it smells really good, and you didn't mean to leave the shepherd, and all of a sudden, you're way far away from home, and you need to learn how to follow again. And that's the analogy, and it really works well on a number of levels, and it's analogy you come back to once in a while, and there's another one after that. Yeah, um, next one we look at, want to look at here is um, the picture where he is the master and I am his servant. God is, right, the king. He's the master, I am his servant. In Psalm 119, verse 124, it says, I am your servant, deal with me in unfailing love and teach me your principles. Give discernment to me, your servant, and I will understand your decrees. And all over scripture there are these pictures and realities um, of how we are the servants and that God is the master. And in some ways, um, this metaphor here, the, the, the oh, not the shepherd sheep, the next one, there we go, the master servant, um, that, that, it's more intimate, right, um, than the clay and the potter and, and, and even closer than the sheep and the shepherd because as a servant, at least now I'm in the house. Right now, I'm not just a lifeless lump of clay. I'm not just a dumb animal. And in this particular metaphor of servant, there is nobility in this. And every one of us have been called to see ourselves as servants alongside Jesus, and also as Jesus being our Lord and our Master. And as a follower of Jesus, we need to come to this place time and time again where we remember and we bend our knee, we mm -hmm. bow our knee to the sovereign king. We submit to God who is the king, right? We acknowledge he's the king, I am not. He is the master, I'm the servant. Mm -hmm. And this is a beautiful place uh, to, to live because there's great joy in this servant and master part of our relationship 
with God and all believers. We need to constantly remember that it is a place of honor to serve God, and I'm honored by the privilege of serving God, and, and I want the way that I serve to be done out of a heart of love. But with all that said, the fact is this. If we just stick with what a servant is, if that's the only facet of our relationship with God that we experience, then we could still, as a servant, walk in and go, well, huh, yeah, this, this isn't my house, you know? Hey, hey, you better wipe your feet. You don't talk too much and don't talk too loud because I'm the servant. And sadly, I think that, that many Christians live only as this servant-master relationship, and some actually might even think that it's the pinnacle of our relationship with God. The point is to serve, um, and that's how you can tell if somebody has arrived spiritually, they're God's servants. And again, this is important, but friends, we have to go deeper. And I think one of the reasons that, that we would be happy with kind of sticking with the servant-master um, metaphor is, is that it might feel a little safer to stay in that camp and not get more closely related. Our intimacy with God doesn't have to be as close if we're in this place, because maybe intimacy scares me. Maybe a limited relationship is really what I want, because if all I am, if all I am is the servant, at least then my role is clear. I just do what I'm told. I obey orders. I do the list. I kind of clean the house. I leave. I hope you like my work. And again, it comes yeah. out of a heart of love, right? I, I, I hope he liked my work. I did it for him. And again, followers of Jesus, absolutely, we live as servants. That's a huge part of following Jesus. But I don't want us to get stuck thinking that this is the ultimate or the only place for us to live. There's more. Dave, yep. what's, what's, yep, there what's is kind more. of the deeper level after that? No, that, you said that really well, because, but, but it's ringing in my ears, because one day... Um, Jesus using this analogy of, of servant and master and knowing the disciples knew it well, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servant. And I got, they had to be going crazy when he's saying this. Okay, we're changing the relationship now. Now I call you, holy cow, friend. I, I don't know what might have shifted or stirred in them when he said, I no longer call you servant. Now I call you friend. And then he goes on to say the difference between a servant and a friend it's kind of what you said, but this is how he said it. For a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. A servant just does what the master says to do. They, the, a servant doesn't really understand the plan, um, uh, what the agenda is, what the direction is. Uh, but I have called you friends for all the things I have heard from my father. I am now making it known to you. So as a friend, you're just not going to keep the rules and follow orders. As a friend, we're going to collaborate together in this Thing called life in the kingdom of God. Um, so there's this reciprocal thing now. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was said of Abraham that Abraham was a friend of God. I remember thinking about that. What does that mean, a friend of God? And I thought of the people who over the course of my life in ministry have become friends to me. And, here, and, it, and it really did fit this because here's what I think it isn't. Uh, when it says that God was and Abraham were, Abraham was a friend of God, and Jesus said to the disciples, you're no longer servants, you're now friends. It wasn't, it wasn't like if I'm God and you're Abraham. They weren't looking at each other and going, I like you. I like you too. Like, you're really nice. And it's not that. It's the, the friend of God thing, because it is so connected to mission. Um, I remember years ago, early in the ministry, I was, I was kind of bonded to this guy. His name is Jeff Van Vonderen. 
And you couldn't have found two more different people. He was a hippie guy in high school and weirdo. Anyway, I just call hippies weirdos. They are. I was more of a jock. No one would have stuck us together as friends. We became the best friends. You know why? Because we had, we had this thing out here about God's amazing grace that we were trying to fashion and articulate. And as we got dialed into this mission thing that we were doing together, we got bonded like this. It's not about, in fact, as a pastor, I say to our people all the time, I always get nervous. People come to church, what are you here? I'm looking for a friend. Buy a dog. Um, um, you will find your friends. You'll find lifelong friends when you identify this is what I am giving my life to. You find somebody else who's got the same mission, you are friends. That's why we are friends. Um, I mean, I actually do like you. Um, and not in a weird way. But, <laughs> but what binds us, what keeps conversations going and wanting to get back together is because there's something bigger than both of us around a mission that we're going... I'm, I, 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 Suffer the loss of all things for this thing, and I'll do it with you or you. And anyway, that's the thing about the friend and the friend. And I think you can get the energy that it's a different thing. It's a different relationship than a servant and a master. Now, it's a different deal, but it goes on from there. Yeah, it gets even, even closer the next... Oh, boy, we're going to have to hit the accelerator, Dave. It was, it, you are the one going along, not me. Yes, it me. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we talk about this next aspect here um, at Hope quite a bit, this, this next metaphor where, where God is my father and I'm his child. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we are now called children of God, and that is what we are. And we spend lots of time immersed in this truth here at Hope, and, and some of us had made, have made great strides in relating to God as a parent, a, a father, maybe in spite of the kind of relationship they had with their earthly mother or father. And so this whole concept, this reality of God as our father has been life-changing for many, many, many of us, including me. So this is an incredibly important piece, that God is our father, because while you are a servant of God's, you are not just a servant in this place. Now you're a child, you're a son, you're a daughter. No longer is there any doubt that you belong in this house because you do. And when we look at all these pictures of, of, of relating to God in this context, um, and we frame it in the context of love, think about framing all these metaphors we've used in the context of love, right? See, love is not something that the clay, the clay and potter share. And, and the sheep might hear, might discern the shepherd's voice, but I'll tell you what, there isn't a sheep who knows the shepherd's heart. Hmm. And if you're a servant, the master might like you, might even love you, but if you're a servant, all the master really owes you is to pay you. Hmm. But now we move closer as a son, as a daughter, now I have access. Suddenly I know that I matter and I belong. But Dave going... Even closer and more intimate than that. And, and that's the one, what you just said, is yeah. the one that we're most dialed yeah. into, I think. And a lot of work that we've all done around that kind of... We sang a song today about Abba and saying, Abba, over and over, he is my father, I am his child. But the highest and the deepest, most exhilarating and maybe the most demanding, I think most frightening, is this one. And it is in Scripture, Paul uses this metaphor all the time of the bride and the groom. Ephesians 1 it's as if Paul is letting us in on a little secret. And it's my paraphrase of verse 4 of Ephesians 1, that you have been more than noticed. You have been pursued from farther than space and longer than time, for God had you in his heart 
before the foundation of the world. So here's my paraphrase of that. Before God made the world, get your head around this. Before God made the world, he did something more important than making the world. He chose you. He chose us. And that is why he came in the first place to woo us and to call us and then to partner with us in the healing of the world, in the bringing of his kingdom, not just as clay with potter or a sheep with a shepherd or a servant with a master or a friend with a friend or a child with a parent, but he has called us to be with him as bride whoa, and groom. And the upside of that is obvious, I think it's obvious, um, to be noticed, to be pursued, I like to hear that. Um, to be chosen is exhilarating. It's kind of romantic in a theological way. But here's the downside of it, and you might already be feeling it. I've kind of touched on it a bit, that God's love as a lover is real, and that's the downside. But <laughs> hang on. Um, because if, if it's real, he's fully engaged. If it's real, it's emotionally charged, which means that God is incapable of being dispassionate toward you. And me, uh, which is why back to Exodus 20, he says that thing that's hard to embrace. Um, um, I, I don't have another God but me. No gods but me, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's where the jealousy comes in, because he's incapable of being dispassionate toward you. But now to all of that, add this, and ironically, Doug, you kind of touched on this already, that back in the garden, we're back at the beginning of the whole story, it's as if Adam and Eve, in the beginning of this love affair, uh, kicked off their honeymoon with God by wandering off. Whoa, that's not a good, play. That's not a good way to start the marriage. <laughs> um, by believing the lies of the enemy, uh, they wandered away by, in some sense, sleeping with the enemy. And the rest of the story, from Adam and Eve, kind of going, I don't know about you, kind of thing, the rest of the story that brings us to this part of the story, we're calling Lent, um, is all about God's uh, pursuit of us, to win us back, to bring us home, to restore relationships. So far more than clay, than clay that complies or sheep that follow or servants who submit or children who obey or friends who agree, God's desire and intent from the beginning of the story has been this, to know and to be fully known. To know us and to be fully known by us, Isaiah 62, as a bridegroom who rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. But while most of us, well, to most of us, that might sound um, okay, might sound like a good thing, we, many of us, in terms of how we think, haven't signed on for that, and we're not entirely comfortable with that, preferring often, and again, I think this is unconscious, but we prefer instead a safer deity, a more manageable arrangement. So, God, you can be king, and I will be servant. You touched on this. I'll do my duty. I will follow orders. I will serve you well. Let's keep our date on the weekend, okay, God? <laughs> I'll go to church on Sunday morning, promise. A little scripture reading here, a little Bible study there, but if God really is a pursuing lover who feels passion for me, he may want more from me than a phone call twice a week. Hey, God, how you doing? <laughs> or whatever. I need some help. Um, more than a date on Sunday morning or a little peck on the cheek. You had something here about the fierceness of this yeah, love. I think um, 
part of what's crucial for us. Part of what's crucial for us to, to grasp uh, in this picture here is, is it's, it's only when we begin to grasp God's desire to be connected in relationship with us to our hearts, not just as a king and servant, but as the lover and beloved. It's only when we understand this that, that we will ever be able to fathom the depths of his anguish or the fierceness of his jealousy. So I think this is so crucial for us. And to really embrace it, this is, we'll turn the corner here to the end and let you tell that story that is so good. To really um, put down our guard and enter into this level of intimacy with God, I really think two questions need to be answered. And I think they're instinctive. They might be you might be asking them in your spirit already. The first question is this. If we're going to let ourselves be consumed kind of like by this kind of God, uh, can we trust him? Seriously, if I'm going to give myself over to this God, can we trust him? Second question, um, is he good? Yeah, can I trust him and is he good? Who here has read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis? Yeah, there's, a, there's a piece in the story where Susan, upon discovering that the great Aslan, the, the son of the great king from across the sea, when she discovers that he's a lion, she becomes afraid. And I'll read from there. I thought he was a man, said Susan. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver replies, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain stupid. <laughs> then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Miss, Mrs. Beaver said? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. <laughs> he's the king, I tell you. And that little snippet right there, it is such a beautiful picture. Because by not safe, he didn't mean he didn't mean that Aslan was going to try to hurt you or force you or even try to control you, but but rock your world, he will do that. Push you out of your comfort zone, he will do that. Ask for your heart and soul, he will do that. And if you need to be in control of everything, then you might not feel like this guy is safe. But you can trust him because he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And he is passionate for you. Friends, this is the story of Lent. Um, Jesus' journey to the cross. And when he did that, we see his desire to win our hearts through love rather than power. Because he's God. He could have powered up. He could have wiped out everything and everyone to show his strength and, and then demand that we submit. But instead, he lays his power down. He allows himself to be nailed to a cross. It is the ultimate act of love. And God, this passionate lover, holds out his hand to you, to me. He asks us to give up all our other lovers to come and be with him alone, to have no other gods but him, just him. And maybe something in us would rather return to something safe, you know, a date on the weekend, a, a peck on the cheek, a little scripture here, Bible study there, but, but he's inviting you, he's calling you, and he is good.
Instead of closing with a song this morning, um, I want you to enter into this, this scene here, this picture of Lent, this season of remembering and returning. And the question is, will you return to your first love? Will you hear the invitation of God, the lover, to you, his beloved? And if you'll just close your eyes. This is what I hear Jesus saying to us this morning. Oh, covenant, I know your deeds, your faithfulness. I love your commitment to live in the light, giving evil no place to hide and fester. You're learning to be an authentic community of grace. I see your kindness, your dedication to faithful service. And I believe Jesus is saying, and I am so, so proud of you. Keep it up. Stay faithful. Remain hopeful. And again, friends, just picture with your eyes closed, just picture Jesus here. And here's what I, I hear him saying to us. I hear him saying today, I invite you, if you've forgotten about my passionate love, I invite you to return your focus to this love relationship with me. And all that other good stuff, remember why you got into this relationship with me in the first place. You did it for love. So remember that first love and return to your first love. To that, my prayer is that we would all say, yes, Jesus, yes, Amen. yes. yes. <laughs> Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to powerfully move amongst us. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you reveal your heart for us. And here at Hope, as oftentimes you call people um, to yourself for the very first time, we celebrate that, but this morning even we are grateful that you call us back to return to our first love with you. I pray as we go into our week now, we would experience and enter into your deep and rich love for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being a part of our little tag team experience.